In our darkest moments, where do we find hope? There's a group of seminary students who asked the janitor to let them into the school gym off hours so they could play basketball. He agreed if they'd let him read their textbooks while they were playing basketball. One day, these students found the janitor reading one of their textbooks on the book of Revelation. And the students asked the janitor, do you know what that book is all about? And the janitor said, oh, yes. And a bit condescendingly, the seminary students said, well, then, what does it mean? And he said, oh, it's easy. Now, what he told them, you'll have to wait till the end of the sermon. In our darkest moments, where do we find hope? Just to give you an example of some of the darkness that's out there, you know it in your own life. Calls this week, marriage in crisis, children and parenting issues, sickness, surgery, employment issues, what is the darkness that you faced in this past year? Or maybe are in right now? Or are worried that might just be around the corner? In our darkest moments, where do we find hope? Well, John, the writer of Revelation, tells us in verse 4 of chapter 1, these words, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. You see, John is the bishop, the overseer of these churches in Asia Minor. This is at the end of the first century, and these churches are suffering great persecution at the hands of Emperor Domitian. And so John writes to these churches as a bishop, one who knows what they are being persecuted, how they're being persecuted, and his word of hope to them this word of grace and peace to them is rooted in this one who is and who was and who is to come. The hope that he offers these churches in persecution is that Jesus is coming. John roots his hope for a church in darkness in the belief, in the trust that Jesus is coming again. You see, we talk about Jesus second coming all the time in church. And yet so often have we really reflected on it. We just said it a moment ago, he will come in again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We'll say it when we come to the Eucharist, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The second coming of Christ is controversial for many. Some are fascinated by it, others are terrified by it. You can see this in bumper stickers as you go up and down the tollway. You've seen some of these? Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. What do you even do with that? My favorite one was from last year, 2016. Jesus is coming soon, hopefully before the election. 
See, this idea of the second coming, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, is at the root of what we're celebrating in Advent. Advent, which means coming or appearance, celebrates both Jesus' first Advent, his first coming in the Nativity, that's what we looked at last week, but also looks at Jesus' second Advent, second coming, second appearance. And what John is telling these persecuted churches is that they will find hope as they look to the second coming. In the midst of darkness, they'll find hope because Jesus' coming brings his kingdom, brings Christ-likeness, a new character, and finally, his coming is coming right now. And we'll explain that in a moment. So first of all, into the darkness, Jesus' coming brings his kingdom. That's the first thing John wants to tell his churches. You see, in our suffering, in our darkness, we're confronted with the reality that the world is not right. There is brokenness, there is sin in this world. The world is not as it should be. And so verse five, John says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The ruler of the kings on earth. Elsewhere in Revelation, king of kings, lord of lords. What John is affirming here is that Jesus, as king and his kingdom, stands above and over every other kingdom. This is highly political language. Can you imagine John writing these words at the end of the first century under a tyrannical kingdom of Caesar? You see, in John's day, as the Christians would be found in hiding underground worship, and the Roman centurions would find them and would bring them into custody, the requirement would not be that they had to completely renounce their faith. The issue was allegiance. They'd say, you can carry on with your quiet little faith in Jesus, but you must go into the temple of Roma and you must take a pinch of incense and place that on the fire. And as the incense goes up, you must say these words, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. But of course, no Christian who knew the power of the risen Jesus could honestly stand anywhere and say, Kaiser Curios. They could only say, Christe Curios, Christ is Lord. They went to their deaths unwilling to shift their allegiance from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so as we're suffering in the darkness, Part of the hope that John brings is that with his coming comes the true kingdom, the true king who will finally put the world back together. But it will not be received happily by all. Look at verse seven. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They'll wail on account of him because this is about kingdoms and conflicts. See, whatever kingdoms we have in our lives, whatever kingdoms we've given allegiance to, must ultimately bow the knee before this king or else they must be done away. Ultimately, our allegiance must be with the king of kings. And that's where the conflict arises. Well, liturgically, we declare our 
allegiance every time we gather. When we say the creed, we are giving our allegiance. We are pledging allegiance to the King of Kings. As we come to the communion table, as we kneel before his table and stretch out our hands to receive, we are again proclaiming our allegiance. You are the only one that can give me what I need, Lord Jesus. But you know the greatest moment of pledging allegiance, giving our allegiance liturgically, is in our baptism services. And every time we have a baptism and we get to, as a community, reaffirm our baptismal vows, we are pledging allegiance to Jesus as the King of Kings. Because in the baptism service, we renounce the one who's truly behind the false kingdoms. We renounce and reject Satan. But what's interesting, in the last 20, 30 years in the Church of England, and in many of the churches in the West, there's been a kind of liberalizing of the liturgy, a moving away from scripture. And so you'll find now in the Church of England, there's a new liturgy, a new alternative rite for baptism that doesn't include rejecting Satan. That You can go through the baptismal rite without actually having to reject and renounce Satan. And so Damian Thompson, writing in The Telegraph, wrote this a few years ago about this in 2014. He said, sources close to hell report that the devil is pleased that he's no longer mentioned by name. He accepts that he's a controversial figure, but being singled out at every single baptism service like that was hurtful. And then Thompson says this, he says, this revision is in a class of its own. Although it's not compulsory, parishes can still use the traditional form. It allows parents and godparents people at the heart of the sacrament of baptism to become conscientious objectors to the notion of Satan. This is about our allegiance. In the darkness, John is saying, the hope is the king is coming. And with him he brings the kingdom. The king is coming to put the world back together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The king is coming. In the darkness, the king is coming. But not only does John give hope in the darkness that the king is coming with his kingdom, but also in the darkness, the king's coming brings Christ-likeness. The king's coming will bring a new character for you and for me. Because you see, in our suffering, in the darkness, it's not only we realize that the world is not as it should be, we realize, if we're honest, that we are not as we should be. We are broken. We are in need. We need the king to come and make us right. The darkness that we live in in this world is a darkness that humanity has made. And so with the promise here is the king comes and with him he brings his new character for our hearts. Christ-likeness. Look at verse 8. These famous words that have been put into architecture and churches for millennia. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Now, what's interesting about Alpha and Omega is that it's not just saying that Jesus is over everything. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last letter. It's not just about his dominance over everything. There's something actually rooted here that has to do with Greek philosophy. See, what John is declaring here is something that his hearers would have heard. For example, in, John 20, in, in Revelation 22, verse 13, the last chapter of Revelation, again, verse 13, we hear these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then John puts these coded words in, the beginning and the end. And these are loaded philosophical terms in the Greek world. You see, the word beginning here, Alpha, beginning, Arche, it's the word that we get archaeology from. Arche is, is, is the start. It's where everything begins. And so when John says that Jesus is our Arche, it means that he is the beginning. He's the prototype. If you want to get a picture of what humanity was meant to look like, you look at Jesus. He's the first in sequence. He is the one, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the prototype of humanity. But it's like all the rest of us came off the assembly line with something broken. Tim Keller in Redeemer Presbyterian New York City has a psychologist, had a psychologist in his parish. And he once asked him, he said, you know, you're in New York City. You're like the psychologist to New York. You get a real cross-section, this amazing diversity. He says, is there any kind of commonality you see in your practice when you're meeting with all these different people that you could sum up? He said, I can sum it up like this. New Yorkers will say this to me every time they're in my office in different ways. I feel like I came off the assembly line with a piece missing. Jesus is the prototype. Jesus is the arche. He's the beginning. He's what we're to be. But not only is he the beginning, the arche, he's also the end. Again, this loaded Greek philosophical term, telos, the end, the destiny. This is where you're heading. Jesus is not only the beginning, the prototype, but he is the destiny. He is what you're to become. As a friend of mine liked to say, the telos, the end of an acorn is an oak tree. The telos of a human being is Christ. We are to grow in Christ's likeness. We are to become like him. That is the promise. That as the king comes, John is saying, we look at the darkness and we see a world that is broken, but we also see us, we are broken, and he comes as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who will finally put us right. He will make us at that point fully in to the ones we've been made to be, Christ-like, his own life in us. What's amazing is John is telling his churches that not only do we look to the second coming with hope in the midst of darkness because it brings a kingdom and the king brings Christ-likeness, a new character in us, but finally, John says there's hope in the second coming because it's coming right now. It's actively coming right now. This is where the grammarians take the cake. You know grammar studies where you look at verb tenses? I know, I'm going to lose some of you right now. Stick with me. It's worth it. Okay, there's past tense and there's 
future tense and there's present tense, but then there's all these other special tenses within those. See, in this passage and all of the passages in the book of Revelation, chapter one, chapter 22, that point to the second coming, they use a very specific tense. It's called the present progressive. Here's what it means. A present progressive tense means something that happened in the past and continues happening now. Something that happened in the past and is still happening. It's carrying on. And so when John writes these words and says in verse four, he who is and who was and who is to come, present progressive, is that his coming already has begun. His second coming has already begun and we are still living in the reality of his second coming more and more. Verse seven, behold, he is coming, present progressive. Verse eight, who is to come, present progressive. The point is, I hope the grammar study was worth it. Jesus' second coming is not some future moment. Jesus sitting on his throne waiting for his iPhone alarm to go off to say, oh, now it's time to get up and start coming back to the earth. No, his second coming began the moment of his ascension. Ever since the day of his ascension, Jesus has been actively coming closer and closer each moment. His coming is sure because his coming is happening at the moment, yet to be fully revealed, but actively pressing in. Can you feel it? You know, it's interesting that every generation of Christians, there's always been a group that have said, Jesus is gonna come in our generation. And you know why that is? It, it can't be or shouldn't be because they've set some signs in the heavens because as Mark 13 tells us, we read today, verse 32, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. It can't be because they've managed to set some dates. The reason, the true reason that Christians in every generation should feel like Christ is gonna come in their day is because we feel the presence of the coming of Christ pressing in more now than about a moment ago. More now again than a moment ago. Closer and closer every moment. And what's amazing about this then is if Jesus' second coming is actually actively happening now, closer and closer, then it means that those two things that he brings to deal with the darkness, kingdom and Christ-likeness, aren't just some future events. It's not just that we've got to sort of rough it out now and wait until one day the kingdom comes or rough it out and wait till one day Christ-likeness appears. No, the kingdom is brought to bear more and more right now. Yet to be fully revealed, but more and more in each and every moment. Christ-likeness in you and I is meant to grow up more and more each and every moment. Yes, one day to be fully revealed, but still even in part now. For example, John says right in the text, we experience the kingdom now because he gives us a role now. He says we've actually got a kingdom role. Verse six, he's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion. Priests. See, priests 
within the context of the New Testament are not just a particular office of people that do things at church. All of the believers together have a priesthood, a priesthood of all believers as we call it, right? Some of us has particular offices of priesthood, but we all have a general priesthood. And here's what I mean. See, priestly work, priestly service is about offering back to God what he's given to us so that he gets the glory. See, priests would offer things on behalf of the community. Our priestly action, therefore, is to take what God has given us, to work it, to creatively use it in the world, to form it and fashion it, and then to offer it back to God. I mean, a priestly action is someone making wine. Wine doesn't happen on its own. Wine requires a priest, a person, a person in this world, in the kingdom. God gives us the grapes, and then we creatively work those grapes, and then all of a sudden we've got wine, and then we offer that back to God and say, look, you get the glory. You gave it all, we worked it, and we give it back to you. This is the act of priesthood. This is our kingdom work. Our kingdom work is living into that kingdom, even now in priestly acts of offering. And this is why, in the context of worship, we include times of offering. We offer our time, our talent, and our treasures in the context of worship because that's our priestly act. Here, O oh Lord, is what you've given me. Here's how I faithfully tried to steward it and worked it creatively, and now I offer it back to you. It's a priestly act. It's a kingdom act now. We were at Party City just a few weeks before Halloween. You know, the uh, place you go for Halloween stuff, one of the places. And my kids came up when we were there and they were all snickering and they had something behind their back. And, and I said, what? And they said, daddy, we found your Halloween costume. <laughs> and I said, what is it, Batman? No, daddy. And they pulled out a priest outfit. They thought they were being hilarious. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's great. You know, why don't we just pick the Pope costume? It's on the wall. The point is, though, that, that picture, though, that priesthood is for all of us. Priestly offering to the Lord. But not only do we experience the kingdom now in our call to priesthood in the kingdom, offering what we have to the Lord, but also we experience it now in that Christ-likeness is happening now. This is not just some future moment. Verse five, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Freed us from our sins. It literally means loosed. He's loosed us from our sins. He's released us. You were in bondage, I was in bondage, and now we're free. We're not stuck. We're not stuck living in that pattern of sin. We're actually loosed and released into the world to live a different kind of life, to actually begin seeing Christ-likeness grow in us now from one degree of glory to the next. Because we are not bound, we are now free to begin living more like Christ. As some of you know, Star Wars, the new movie's coming out this week. You know, our student ministry is so cool. They rented out an entire theater for the student ministry to watch Star Wars together. And so I sent Father Creighton, our student ministry director, a little text a little while ago. And I said, Father Creighton, just wanted to check that you might have space in the theater 
for me? And I instantly got this text, but lightning back. And he said, oh, he said, I've got six seats reserved for you and your whole family. And I said, I knew you're going to have a long career at Christ Church. <laughs> but again, what I love about the Star Wars franchise, go with me on this for one sec, is that the whole thing is about, you know, the, this, 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 this force, this, this inner power that lives within us. And, and it's about growing in and learning how much power you really have to do these amazing things. And it's a picture of our lives as Christians. That there is power living in you and me that is yet to be fully realized. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity has come to dwell in the heart of the believer, slowly but surely training us more and more to live like Jesus. Now, not just one day, but now, more and more, greater is he who is living in you than he who is in the world. And full disclosure, just as I close, this Christ-likeness living in us now, in the midst of darkness as we await the final full appearance of the king, this Christ-likeness doesn't always look like the happiest moment. It doesn't always look like what we'd hope it would look like. You see, Romans 8, 28 is a text that's often, I would argue, overused by Christians. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And it's on art and it's on cards and people throw it around. And the difficulty is when you're in the midst of darkness, when you're in the midst of real struggle, Romans 8, 28 all by itself, without Romans 8, 29, can, can almost be offensive. What, what do you mean God is going to take this horrible thing that just happened and he's going to make it good? Like, and they'll say, well, there's silver lining in the clouds. Really? No, you see, Romans 8.28 only makes sense in the context of Romans 8.29. God causes all things to work together for the good. All things, anything that we are confronted with, the darkest of the dark, God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God who are called according to his purposes. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first among many brethren. You see, the good that God is using in our lives, the good that God is bringing out of the darkness in our lives is that we would look like Christ. That's the good. And therefore, if we're gonna look like Christ, if Christ-likeness is gonna grow up in us, sometimes it's gonna look like a cross. Sometimes it's going to look like rejection. Sometimes it's going to look exactly like Christ's own life. Because that's what Christ-likeness means. The full life of Christ being brought to bear in my life and yours for the sake of the world. In our darkest moments, where do we find hope? John would say it's by looking to the second coming the king is bringing his kingdom and he's bringing Christ-likeness, a new character for our hearts. And it's happening even now as he comes now. That group of seminary students asked that janitor to let them in the gym after hours to play basketball. And he agreed as long as they'd let him read their textbooks. And that one day they found him reading a book on Revelation. And they said, do you know what it's all about, that book, Revelation? And he said, oh, it's easy. And they said, kind of condescendingly, Really? What does it mean? And he said, it's simple. Jesus is going to win. 
in our darkest moments, where do we find hope? Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.